It is a great pleasure to be with you here in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. HMS Richards had a theme song, Lift up the trumpet and loud let it ring. The King's Herald sang that. They also had another song they liked singing. The Lord is coming. Are you ready? That second song, I heard it sung, oh, probably there in the middle of the 60s, 1960s, back in South Africa, when a physician, Dr. Leroy Latachan, with one of the most glorious bass voices that I've ever heard, sang it. And he sang, The Lord is coming. Are you ready? But he changed the last stanza. The Lord is ready. Are you coming? And all these beautiful songs about the second coming, they are wonderful. But lift up the trumpet and loud it, let it ring. Well, somebody says, no, brother, don't lift it up. Don't let it sound so loudly. Put a potato into it to muffle the sound. I hope that we as Seventh-day Adventists will not put a potato in. No. Lift up the trumpet and loud let it ring. Jesus is coming again. Coming again. Coming again. Jesus is coming again. But it is a bit of a shame that it is necessary for us as Seventh-day Adventists to rehearse this theme again, as though we were not always sure what we believed about it. But let's look at it. First, how will he come? Well, the Bible tells us. There in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, when Jesus had ascended and the disciples were gazing up after him, suddenly there were two men, angels in bright garments, saying, You men of Galilee, why are you looking up like that? This same Jesus, whom you have seen taken up into heaven, into the cloud, will likewise come back. Yes, in a cloud, a mysterious cloud, which really is a host of angels. And in the Apocalypse, Revelation 1 verse 7, we read, Every eye will see him, including those who will have pierced him. He comes with clouds, 
and every eye will see him. Oh no, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, that's not really an eye, that's an inward eye of understanding. Now, they were not the first to say funny things like that. There was a Jesuit by the name of Luis del Alcazar in the 16th century, in the time of the Counter-Reformation. Now, he said, well, uh, yes, he'll be coming back, but it's really also the clouds of preaching of the gospel. How beautiful. Yes, but that's not what the Bible says. Every eye will see. And Jesus told us about his second coming, sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking down through the centuries. He saw and told his disciples everything that would happen, how Jerusalem would be destroyed, how there would be persecution, a great tribulation such as the world has never seen and never will see again. And if the days would not be shortened, nobody would be saved, but the days would be shortened. But he said, beyond that, how the Lord would come. They would see him. It would be like the lightning striking lighting up the sky from the east to the west. And there will be this great trumpet sound and his angels would gather his elect. And he said, careful, there will be many false Christs and false prophets. Don't let them deceive you. When they say, go out into the desert, Go out to Mormon, Utah. Don't do it. Or if they say, oh, well, he's in the secret rooms. Don't go to a spiritualistic seance. Jesus does not come that way. Also, Jesus does not come to you when you die and you go to a heaven something that will not happen. For the dead know not anything. They don't go to heaven when they die. But the Lord also said there would be certain signs. Great earthquake, the sun darkening, the stars falling. And that is said even more clearly in the book of Revelation under the sixth seal when there would be a great earthquake and there was the greatest in recorded history up to that time in 1755 the great Lisbon earthquake which also caused a tsunami a great wall of water which destroyed most of Lisbon in Portugal cities in Morocco in North Africa killing 40 to 50,000 people. The effects of it 
being noted as far north as Finland and as far west as the Caribbean. Now you have heard of tsunamis. In the year 2004, on December the 26th, there was this great tsunami in the Far East. I remember that date. Well, it was our 50th wedding anniversary, the great earthquake. Not long after it, there was the great dark day seen in New England and as far as Canada. And it was not an eclipse. It started between 10 and 11 o'clock in the morning and it went on until past midnight of the next night. The uh, cows came home to be milked. The confused uh, fowls to roost because uh, this was a sign of nightfall to them. Now, nobody knows exactly what caused it. Some people say it was forest fires. Read about it on the internet, Google it up. But whatever the cause, it happened. The Lord had predicted it. 1780. And then, when the moon became visible, it was as red as blood. After 1798, which marked the beginning of the time at the end, there was the last of the three signs because they were in a specific sequence. The great earthquake, the darkening of the sun called the great dark day, and the falling of the stars in 1833, the Leonid meteorites. And they kept on falling continuously. Somebody actually ran out and read from the Bible by the light of those stars about the falling of the stars in the book of Revelation. And some of those meteors were huge. Some of them visually were bigger than the moon, exploding like fireballs, like nothing that you or I have seen. Now, Jesus had said that there would be a great tribulation such as the world has not seen and never will see again. But the days would be shortened. What days? 1260 prophetic days would be shortened. And in Reformation lands, the time was shortened about 200 years. Now, Near the end of this were these three signs. And eventually, beyond that, will be the sign of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, the clouds again. Now notice that we're also told by the Apostle Paul that the Lord will come. It will be very visible. It will be loud with the sound of a trumpet, not some inconspicuous thing. And it will not be a secret rapture either. But you see, the devil doesn't like these prophecies. So he set about subverting the interpretation. And this brings us 
to this further point that the great tribulation that Jesus spoke about there in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 has its parallel in the book of Daniel. Daniel 12, verse 1, it speaks about this great, great tribulation, using similar language, but linked to a time, times, and a dividing of times, when the holy people, the children of God, would be dealt with terribly. And also in Daniel 7, 25, where it speaks of the little horn, and uh, the little horn would continue for, again, that period of time. But in the New Testament, the same period of time is mentioned five times in one shape or form or the other. I think it is in Revelation 13 where it speaks of the seven-headed, uh, uh, ten-horned beast, the sea beast, the papal beast, will continue for 42 months, oppressing, of course, again, the people, the saints of the Most High. And it is mentioned elsewhere there in Revelation. What is interesting about this time prophecy which is important for the second coming because the second coming must take place after the 1260 days that it is given in days, 1260 days, in months, 42 months, in years, three and a half years. Now we say this is symbolic. We say that these are year days, where every day stands for a year. But these Jesuits got busy. There was uh, Ribera, Francisco Ribera, Jesuit priest, there in about 1590. And he said, well, the Antichrist is still coming in the future. And he said quite a few things about it. Now the Protestants have been say, were saying up to that time, oh, the papacy is the Antichrist. Now the Jesuits didn't like that. They were out to protect the Pope. So they came up with these alternatives. And by the way, Luis Alcazar said, preterism is all in the past, Nero, or possibly... Uh, a king, a Hellenistic king, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, or the Emperor Nero. That's all in the past. But a more popular, the more successful view is that of Ribeiro. Oh, it's all in the future. You see, deflect the finger of accusation away from the papacy. And they sold the bill of goods to the Protestants and especially Southern Baptists just like this stuff. Futurism, we call it dispensationalism. It is Catholic eschatology. And it has this stuff about the rapture in it. 
when the Lord comes, do you think that those who believed in the rapture will say, oh Lord, no, that's wrong. Go back, try again. Uh, first, take the redeemed away secretly and then come back later on. No, it's not going to work like that. We cannot dictate to the Lord. We must read what the Bible says and believe it. Now the dispensationalists say, well, uh, you know that 1260 days is uh, three and a half years, and if you take the last prophetic week of the 70 weeks, you read about this in Daniel 9, you take that last week and you divide it into two groups of three and a half, that's seven years. Well, they accept the year-day principle for that purpose, but not for other purposes. All right? But they say a week, a prophetic week, seven years. But we fit into it the 1260 days plus another 1260 days, three and a half, three and a half, literal time. They say the 1260 days is literal time. 1260 days to three and a half years. Now, Larry, where are you? Uh, come up, please, here. I want to tell everybody what happened to me one day. I was busy writing that book, Christ and Antichrist in Prophecy and History. And I sat in a particular place, I remember it well, in the living room. And I heard a voice say to me distinctly in my mind, take out your little calculator and see whether there really are 1260 days, literal death, days in three and a half calendar years. So I took out my little calculator and I worked it out three minutes. I checked it again. Larry, I want us to do that calculation. How do we work out how many literal days there are in three and a half years? All right, in one year, according to the Gregorian calendar, there are 365.2422 days. Now, we work with leap years, but in reality, it's 365.2422 days. Multiply that by 3.5. That's three and a half years. That will give you how many days there really are in three and a half calendar years. What do you get? Okay. Not 1260 days, about 1,278 days, plus three, four, and the other I've not remembered. Eighteen days, more. So the math, thank you, Larry, the math of the dispensationalists is wrong. I wrote an article about this dispensationalist calculation error which appeared in the ministry, oh, I think it was about in 2002. 
It is wrong. It cannot be right. So the 1260 days must be symbolic time based on a different calendar. It's not actually on the Hebrew lunar calendar as it came to be known because the uh, lunar calendar of the Jews sometimes there's 12 months and sometimes there's 13 months. But if you go back to Genesis where it writes about the flood, it talks about a year of 360 days. It's possible that the Lord did something to the orbit of the earth in the time of the flood. But the devil doesn't want people to believe in this coming of Christ or to preach it or to announce it. Now remember the sevenfold prophecy. It is necessary to our understanding of the second coming as to when it will be. It has to be after 1798 and there were these three signs, the Great Lisbon Earthquake plus Tsunami, the Great Dark Day, the falling of the stars as precursors to warn the world. And not very long after that, not very long after 1833, we find that in many parts of the world the, thir the first angel's message was being proclaimed most prominently here in North America by William Miller, but also in other parts of the world in different ways. I mentioned that in some of my writing as well. Now, there are people who don't like this historicism. Gus Foster, I believe, has had problems with a Seventh-day Adventist professor, a man with a PhD, at Pacific Union College. Said he did not like this historicism thing. It was a priori that Gus just assumed, in other words, took it for granted, this thing of, about historicism. Now, whoever the learned professor may be, he was talking through the back of his head. He was talking utter nonsense because Historicism is the only method of prophetic interpretation that can actually be validated, that can be proven by comparing the predictions of the Bible point by point with the events of history. It's also called the continuistic school. Now, all this other stuff, preterism, projecting everything into the past uh, or futurism, projecting things into the future, a la Luis del Alcazar and Francisco Rivero. Uh, that is nonsense, but it is deliberate nonsense to protect the papacy. And then there are the idealists who say, well, you read everything uh, exegetically the way the, the readers in the time of John would have understood the revelation. Now that again is a method of allegorization that goes back to Oregon 
was a great heretic, a very learned heretic, an Egyptian who wrote in Greek. He lived about 200 years after Christ. Now, all these cobwebs need to be swept out of our minds so that we can look clearly at the word. We take it for what it says. We are not to make up our own version or doctrine of the second coming. The Lord will come the way he has promised he would come. Now, most Protestants have given up historicism. Men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, or later John Wesley and others, they believed in historicism. And they said, the Pope is the Antichrist. Not the Pope as one individual, but the papacy. But remember, every Pope is a reincarnation of Peter. If you go to the Vatican, and look there in the rotunda, it says in Latin, tu es Petrus, et superhunk Petram edificabo ecclesia mea. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So every pope is a kind of so-called reincarnation of Peter. The vicar of Christ, the vicar of the Son of God, meaning the representative of the Son of God. Do you know what Ellen White says about it? In the great controversy and in other places, she speaks of the representative of Satan, the Bishop of Rome. Wow, what a statement. See, claim is, he is the representative of Christ. She said, no, he does represent somebody, but somebody else. I'm not making this up, you can go and check it. I don't actually like having to preach the three angels' messages and the others. I don't like saying to people, if you make Sunday laws and you threaten people with death, then God threatens you with hellfire. I don't like saying this to anybody. And uh, of course we should never say to an individual Catholic, that's where you're going because there are children of God in the wrong church and there are children of Satan in the church of God and he will sort them out. Nevertheless, we do have a job of work to do to proclaim these things. It is very clear in the scriptures how the Lord will come. But let me return to my initial question. The Lord is coming. Are you ready? Or, as Leroy Latacham changed the last stanza, the Lord is ready. 
Are you coming? And, my dear brothers and sisters, will you keep on lifting up the trumpet and not put a potato into it to muffle the sound? Lift up the trumpet and loud let it ring. Jesus is coming again. Let us bow our heads. Our dear Lord and Father, we fervently believe these things. Help us to carry them in our hearts and let them ascend to our lips so that we will proclaim and those around us will hear from us and will look at us and see that we walk our talk. Bless us. Save us. In the name of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's for audio verse? Okay, hi. Um, so I'll give a question. <clears throat> you mentioned Elkazar and Ribera. I, I also remember a fellow by the name of Bellamine. How did that come to be accepted by the Protestant Church? I've written about that. In fact, in that article of mine, a dispensationalist era in the ministry, and that is, a, it is attached somewhere. It's on my website. You see, there at the beginning of the 19th century, the rot began to set in. And there was a man by the name of Maitland. He was an Anglican, and he had read the Ribera, by the way. And he wrote to say, no, it is not a, a year for a day, it's literal time. He wrote about that. Now, Maitland was an Anglican, and the Anglicans are sort of halfway on the way to Rome. And then these ideas caught on in other parts of Britain, and by the way, destroyed eventually the first angel's message in Britain. It went over to Ireland. There was somebody by the name of Todd. Todd was actually a Protestant, but he was also a, an Irish nationalist, nationalist. Now, you see, the Irish did not like the English because the English had oppressed them a long time. Even while the English were Catholics, and so, uh, Todd, he liked Maitland's ideas, and he said, no, uh, the Roman church is a genuine Christian church. It is not anti-Christian. So you see, he wanted all these Catholics and Protestants in Ireland together. And by the way, you will find that Irish Catholicism has given archbishops to many parts of the world even to America. But over at Oxford, 
there were people like Newman and Manning who were more and more entranced by the beauty of Catholic services and the idea of an unbroken line of succession all the way down from the Savior to the Pope. But something stood in the way of that interpretation, namely the Protestant historicist uh, talk about the Pope being the Antichrist. But when they read Todd, they said, no, that makes sense. No 1260 years, those are just days. And the Pope is not the Antichrist, and the, the Antichrist is still coming, okay? And that is when Newman converted, and so did Manning, and Manning became the Archbishop of the Roman Catholics and a cardinal. And Newman became a cardinal of the Catholic Church. And that is where the ecumenical movement really started going. One of the popes, I think uh, John Paul II, admitted that's where the ecumenical movement really started in Britain. You know, getting Catholics and Protestants together in that way. That briefly is what happened so far as my researchers could tell. Any other question? Uh, what is this about the ecumenical movement? Well, these ideas of futurism were brought over to America. And you find uh, this all very well expressed in the Schofield Bible. And Southern Baptists especially are very strong on this rapture stuff. In fact, I can tell you that at one little church that I attend in southernmost Texas, uh, one of our ministers came and conducted a little evangelistic series. Now remember, this was in an Adventist church. So his first lecture was about the Sabbath. And the second one, I believe, was about the papacy, the change of the Sabbath. And I was amazed. I mean, that's not how you do it. Well, no, but uh, this is an Adventist church. They know they keep Saturday. And then it came to this rapture thing. They said, you present the other things first, and the Baptists won't mind your saying that. But the moment you start talking about it's not being the rapture, they will drop you. They won't want to listen to you anymore. Is that Pastor Bohr that I see there? And I see him nodding. Have you had that experience? The devil has sold the bill of goods very, very well. The devil is a great salesman. Anything else? Oh, wait. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned more than one theory, the futurist, the... You mean the different methods of prophetic interpretation? The prophetic interpretation, I'm sorry. Yeah, going back to, to that. And the past one, the preteritist or preterism, I'm sorry, I'm not saying yes, it right. Yes, all right. You want me to repeat something about that? Well, no, no, my, my question is, 
which one is currently the papacy accepting as the official from their point of view? You know, the papacy does not mind so long as it isn't preterism. My latest book, which is there on the table and it's not mentioned in, under my resume, a more perfect word of prophecy. It's in color, by the way. Uh, deals with this thing that the papacy did over the centuries. But the papacy does not mind whether it is preterism or futurism or idealism, so long as it is not this historicism thing, so long as the holy pope is not pointed out, is not fingered as the Antichrist. And uh, this is what we're up against in our time. We are the only denomination of any considerable size that still believes in historicism. But the devil is now at work in the church as well to undermine this, this thing. And I want to tell you what helps the devil a great deal is the general ignorance of history amongst many Seventh-day Adventists. They used to know more about history, and I don't mean just ecclesiastical history, history. It used to be taught as a subject in American schools. Well, now they mix it with geography and civics, and they call it social studies. No. And this has confused some of our people. Uh, there's one of our men, and I won't mention his name here. It's mentioned in my books. Uh, and his friend, also very uh, influential, they admitted that they did not, uh, they, they had no expertise in the field of history and they were writing about prophecy. Now, how can you write about prophecy if you don't know any history really and you are even admitted? And so they got Samuel Bakyoki as their authority to help them because he was a historicist. And, he, and Samuel Bakyoki said, yes, Vicarius Philly Day has been applied to the Pope. But then, unfortunately, Bakioki, whose church history may have been fairly good, but was not much good at uh, the theology of prophecy, he said it doesn't matter, even though that title did exist, because all the numbers and so on in uh, Revelation are symbolic. 144,000 is symbolic. 1260 is symbolic. It's not really days or years, it's symbolic. You see how people are muddled. And I find in all this very sad thing that we're allowing the devil to get the upper hand. All we need to do is to look at the Bible and see what it says and do some studying. Don't be lazy. Okay. Anything else? Are you satisfied, brother? But they're going to catch me out soon. You, you have about 15 minutes, so we need a couple more questions. Yeah. You mentioned in your presentation the lunar calendar. And I have a close friend who 
has gotten caught up in the lunar Sabbath idea. Can you comment on that? Lunar Sabbath. I am not acquainted with the lunar Sabbath. What is the lunar Sabbath? Well, the lunar Sabbath is based on a, a 28-day cycle with several additional days thrown in. So to, in other words, so the Sabbath that shifts around. Right. Oh, my brother, the Sabbath comes from creation. It has nothing to do with the sun or the moon or the stars. It has to do with the rotation of the earth, of our planet. When God made the earth in six days and said it was very good, and then he rested on the seventh day. You find that in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, and you find that language reflected in the Ten Commandments. There's no lunar Sabbath. I understand that. Well, I, I don't know where they get it from. Pastor Ball, that's a formidable man who's going to ask that question. I just want to make a comment on the lunar Sabbath. Secrets Unsealed carries a book called The Lunar Sabbath Conspiracy. Good. Where it deals with all of the ins and outs of the idea that uh, the Sabbath falls on the 2nd, the 9th, the 15th, the 22nd, and 29th of the month. So you might want to get a copy of that book. Excellent. I'm glad there are other people to help out. Oh, I want to mention to you a wonderful book written by Austin Cook. A-U-S-T-I-N. Cook, C-O-O-K-E. An aged Australian who will be 98 next month. Who for about, is it 70 years, researched the book of Revelation and he wrote a point-by-point explanation of it. I have not read that old book, so I can't vouch for everything there, but it's a wonderful book. It was also endorsed by Dr. Gerard Damsicht, you know, of the seminary. It is a wonderful book and a very deeply spiritual book, too. It's full of wonderful research, but well-written. The language is simple and arresting. Look, I'm not here just to talk to you and uh, maybe sell some of my books. But that is a splendid book by Austin Cook. Uh, Look at it on the internet. Teach services. You can get it as a soft cover and whatnot. Get the hard cover. You may pay a little more than 50 bucks. It's a hard cover book, a big, big book like that, also about 700 pages. Wonderful book. We have a question here. What about in Isaiah 66 where it says, from one Sabbath to another and from one new moon to another shall all flesh come worship before me? Can that be addressed? Okay. Uh, well, on the new earth, they will have a lunar calendar, apparently, but the Sabbath is not tied to the lunar calendar. So, remember, you know our Lord Jesus Christ is a Jew. Not was a Jew, he is a Jew. And they'll have the 12 apostles there, uh, and their names are on the foundations of that city. So we had all uh, 
better fit in there. But they will be observing the Sabbath. And, well, okay, they observe the, uh, have a lunar calendar. Why not a lunar calendar? Remember the Gregorian calendar was prepared by a Jesuit astronomer. Do you know why? So that Easter would always fall on a Sunday. And Easter was the beginning of Sunday keeping. The little, the little uh, uh, pasqueta, as uh, Akiyoki called it. They kept one Sunday and then uh, it spread out. The Lord will not have much time for the Gregorian calendar on the new earth. Why should he? I don't want to be hard on Pope Gregory, but it was a Pope. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.